Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, August the 6th, 2022. It is currently 1.32 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Well, it's Saturday. It's the weekend. And and you, you probably remember many of those popular pop songs that talked about working for the weekend, right? The weekend is here. It's time to cash the paycheck, go to the club, have a party, pursue the weekend, right? I mean, we, we, we thank God that it's Friday. We thank God that we don't have to go back to work unless you work on the weekend. But for many people, you can't wait till that clock says four o'clock or five o'clock on Friday and it's the weekend. And then you immediately run into the weekend, rush into the weekend to pursue maybe hanging out with friends, maybe a barbecue, the park, hiking, whatever activities you enjoy. But you run into the weekend to grab on to as many of those things as possible, to enjoy them as much as possible before you wake up on Monday and you're right back into the same routine. Get up, go to work, make some money, come home, go to sleep, get up, go to work. The, the daily routine. But in the midst of that daily routine, there's a lot of things that we run around trying to grab onto. There's a lot of things we pursue. There's a lot of things we give our focus to, our attention to, our affection to, our love, our excitement. So, so just look back over the last seven days. What have, what have you been excited about? What have you given yourself to? What have you tried to grab on to? Is it possible that you've spent a lot of time, maybe over the last seven days, maybe over the entire summer, maybe most of 2022, maybe a good portion of your life is you're constantly trying to grab onto and pursuing the word Hebel. H-E-B-E-L. Are you grabbing onto Hebel? Are you pursuing Hebel. Now the word actually we should not the, the B word the B the letter B there should actually be given a V sound. So we, we, instead of saying Hebel, we should say Hevel. H E B E L, but it's stated as if the B is a V, so it's Hevel. Or some would say Havel. Are, are, are you familiar with the word Hebel, Hevel, Havel? Are, are you familiar with the term? You may not be familiar with the term, but trust me, most of us spend our life pursuing this, grabbing onto it, trying to hold on to it. And maybe at some point we realize, what are we grabbing onto? This is just Hevel. This is just Havel. This is just Hebel. This is, even if we don't know how to say the word correctly, it's just are you familiar with the term? You, you should be very familiar with the term. Here's the reason why. Here's the reason you should be very, very familiar with the term. The word is used 73 times within the King James. It's translated one way 61 times that you are very familiar with. It's, it's translated another way 11 times. You should be pretty familiar with that. And then the last 
you w- you wouldn't really you wouldn't really care about that one. But the word again, it's H E B E L. So some people will say Hebel, but it's actually the B sound gets a V, so it's Hevel. And I think the correct way to actually say it is Havel. Are you familiar with it? Again, even if you don't know the word, trust me, you've spent a good portion of your life grabbing onto it, holding on to it, convincing yourself that it's something significant when in reality it isn't. What am I talking about on this Saturday afternoon? What am I talking about? Well, I think there's a I think there's a, a more interesting way to introduce this. I, I've given I've given my attempt, but let me tell you why we're talking about this word because this morning I was listening to something and it was all about the word hevel or havel or again some people if you're just to read it in the English you would say hebel because it's H E B E L but the B sound gets a V. This is the reason we're talking about it because this is what I heard this morning. Listen carefully. Do you remember the first time you played with soap bubbles? What about the last time? One Saturday, five years ago, my two youngest sons and I set out to make the biggest, baddest soap bubble in the neighborhood. Online, we found a recipe. Stop right here. Do you remember the last time you played with bubbles? Do do you remember? Was that ever a big thing for you, playing with bubbles? Did did you find that fun? Did you find it entertaining? Or did you find it kind of like, well, I mean, you make a bubble and it just kind of disappears. And why are we listening to someone talk about playing with soap bubbles and this, well, this, they set out to make the biggest and baddest soap bubble ever. Like what, what, what's going on? What does this have to do with the word Hebel or Hevel or Havel? What, what does this have to do with that? Well, keep listening. For the bubble solution, it called for water and dish soap and 99.7% pure vegetable glycerin. We filled a five-gallon bucket with it, then made the biggest, baddest bubble wand you ever did see. Two wooden dowels as long as baseball bats, connected by a six-foot loop of string, with one end weighted down by several quarter-inch washers, the string threaded through their centers. We carry it all outside to the front yard, and my son Titus soaks the wand assembly in the bucket. He brings it out, the dowels over his head, and slowly pulls them apart. The sopping wet loop of string begins to separate, weighed down by the washers on the lower half, as Titus steps backward into the light breeze behind him. Out from his soapy wizard's wand comes a glossy, glittering, iridescent mass, appearing like a Petronas, gliding like the Hindenburg. It was magnificent. And then, whoosh, it was gone. A slight gust of wind, and it vanished like it wasn't even there. And that was just the beginning of two hours of pure, soapy wonder. Now, I want you to really hear that. They, they set everything up to make this amazing soap bubble, right? They, they came up with the equipment, the solution, they mixed it together, and there it was, the largest, baddest soap bubble ever made. It was amazing. It was glorious. And it just disappeared just like that. 
one small gust of wind and it was gone. It was all of that effort, all of that focus to make it and it disappeared in seconds. You saw it. It looked glorious. It looked awesome. Maybe it made everyone cheer. Maybe it brought smiles to everyone's face. And then it was gone. I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with the word Hevel? Hevel. What is it? What what does it have to do? And why is that word used 73 times in the King James Version of the Bible? What, what is going on? Well, let's see if they explain. A soap bubble, big or small, many or just one, captivating, fascinating, here in the moment and gone in a flash. It's an image for the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel, spelled H-E-B-E-L, but with the B pronounced as a V. There are other images besides soap bubbles that could capture the various experiences behind hevel. A silky thread of smoke spiraling upward from a freshly extinguished candle. A delicate spider web shimmering in the morning light. Those also could be icons of Hevel. Hevel is one of the favorite words of the Hebrew author responsible for the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Hevel is one of the favorite words used for the author of Ecclesiastes. And it does not take long for the word to show up. In fact, I've got the book of Ecclesiastes right here. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, no hevel there. No, no, no not there yet. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. Now, if you'll look up an interlinear, right? If you open up an interlinear, you'll click on verse two. You open up the interlinear and guess what you're going to see? Vanity, hevel, of vanities, hevel, vanity, hevel, of vanities, hevel. All is vanity, hevel. It's used multiple times in verse two. And if you click on the word hevel, you'll notice that it's actually it's this, it's this Hebrew word. H, 1892. Hevel. 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 See, that's why I was stating it that way, because that's the way I was taught Havel. Now, on the program we were just listening to, they say Hevel, which is okay, but Havel is, is the way I would, would have given it to you if I was doing this on my own, but I wanted to use their explanation and I wanted us just to work through the word. Again, if you look at it, it's H-E-B-E-L. The B gets the V sound, so it's Hevel, Havel. That's the Hebrew word. That's the Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is illustrated perfectly with the idea of spending all of that time trying to put together the biggest soap bubble that you can. And it just pops. It just vanishes. It just disappears. All around you, all around you is Havel. All around you is vanity of vanities, meaningless, 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 meaningless. It is all around you. And whether you like it or not, the reality is you and I spend a lot of time pursuing Havel, pursuing that which is vain, that which is empty, that which is meaningless. 
So again, the Hebrew word, let's listen to it one more time. Strong's H, 1892. Hevel. Hevel. Hevel is used 73 times. It's translated vanity 61 times and vain 11 times. The definition is emptiness or vanity, something transitory, unsatisfactory, often used as an adverb, altogether vain or vanity. But please note, it, it describes emptiness. Something transitory, unsatisfactory, something that is there and boom, it is gone. And it it, it ultimately leaves you, well, empty, unsatisfied, unfulfilled. The outline of biblical usage, it, it can be used to describe vapor, breath, breath, vapor, vanity. It's something that's there and then it is gone. It's just you see it, you try to grab onto it, and, and, and but you can't, you can't truly grab onto it. You may pursue it, you may think you have it, but you're left with meaningless, 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 vanity, vanity, vanity. Useless, useless, worthless, worthless. But it takes a long time for us to realize how empty and meaningless it is, but we grab onto it. And if you listen carefully, Ecclesiastes gives you a very important clue. Listen carefully. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit, what profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? Under the sun. When we just look at this life under the sun, we don't look up. We just look across this earth and across this life and we see everything that we may that we may convince ourselves that it's so important right maybe your career maybe this maybe you're pursuing this maybe you have a dream maybe you have a a goal and you're grabbing onto this and you're pursuing this and you're chasing this and we try to give Havel, some kind of, of meaning. So we, we try to grab onto it, right? Some people want to grab onto how wonderful high school was or, or when that were, when people are in high school, they try to act like it's so significant. It's so important. Everything here. And we get upset and we get bothered and, and we get emotional, but it's really just Havel. It's vanity. It's meaningless. People at their jobs, they act like that, you know, the whole world hinges on everything that happens within that place of employment on that given day. And people get upset and they argue and people are, you know, using politics and office politics to maneuver, to get positions, to get this, to get that. They want recognition. They want, they want to be rewarded. They, and it's just so much of their life is given to it. And it's just Havel. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's empty. No matter how much you try to grab onto it. And whether you like it or not, you spend a lot of your life grabbing on, grasping to that which is just empty and meaningless and vain. In fact, everything under the sun, in a sense, its essence really is Havel. Now, let's see what they have to say about this. He uses the word 29 times, last I counted, at the opening, in the closing, and all throughout. 
Ecclesiastes takes us on an imaginative, explorative journey around the world. He brings us to mountaintops, forest floors, ocean depths. He shows us smoke-filled back rooms where politicians hold secret deliberations and a fire for cooking that quietly crackles kindling under a boiling stockpot in the corner of the kitchen. Here and there, everywhere Ecclesiastes looks, he sees Hevel. Everything is Hevel, he tells us. With so many English translations of the Bible, we are blessed with a variety of ways to express this captivating, fascinating word. Vanity, vapor, futility, absurdity, pointless, meaningless. But the basic meaning is breath. It's also a name the name of the second son of Adam and Eve recorded in the book of Genesis. We usually pronounce it Abel, but it's the same Hebrew word, Hevel, meaning breath. Abel, or Hevel, was the second human born outside the Garden of Eden. Here in a moment, fascinating, captivating, then gone in a flash of rage, murdered by his older brother, Cain. Cain, Sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired. After Adam and Eve betrayed God's trust in the garden, Cain became their firstborn. And when he was born, his mother said, I have acquired, she said, with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man. And soon after, Hevel was born. And so, the opening chapters of the Bible could be summarized as follows. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, whose names mean human and life, had a son called Acquired. Separated from God, human and life brought forth Acquired, and what they acquired stole their breath away. And it's been Hevel ever since. For a native Hebrew speaker saturated in these Old Testament accounts, the word Hevel was rich with multiple meanings, which may be why it's difficult to pick just one English word to render it. The word evokes the wonder and the weariness of life. This mortal life, both beautiful and brief, fragile, fleeting, and sometimes absurd. Generations come and generations go. Ecclesiastes tells us in his opening chapter, The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south, turns and blows to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All the streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams came from, there they will return. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Linus says to his friend, What's wrong, Charlie Brown? I just got terrible news, Charlie Brown answers. The teacher says I have to get an A on my report or I'll fail the whole course. Why do we have to have all this pressure about grades, Linus? Linus says, well, I think the purpose of going to school is to get 
good grades so that you can go on to high school. And the purpose is to study hard so that you can get good grades. So you can go to college. And the purpose of going to college is so you can get good grades. And so you can go on to graduate school. And the purpose of that is to work hard to get good grades so we can get a job and be successful so that we can get married and have kids so that we can send them to grammar school and get good grades so that they can go to high school and get good grades so they can go to college and work hard. Good grief. What are Charlie Brown and Linus talking about? There's a Hebrew word for it. It's this thing about life that makes you wonder, what is the point? What is the purpose? What difference will it make to anyone in a hundred years from now? Faced with this fact of life, at least two responses are possible. On the one hand, you could shrug and say, meh, it is what it is. Or, on the other hand, you could resist and say, it shouldn't be this way. And even though it seems that all our efforts to improve the world or change the world so far vaporize like soap bubbles blown into a brick wall, like smoke from a candle, like a spider web and a gust of wind, still something inside the human heart haunts us and keeps filling us with hopes and dreams and agendas and fairy tale endings about how things could be different, how the world was made for more than just Hevel. And maybe... That first defeated outlook is a pill that keeps us sedated or a trap. And something's waiting in the shadows to devour us. Now, they do a very good job here of helping us feel a little bit of the utter hopelessness with the reality of Havel. It is the reality of life under the sun. It is meaningless and it is useless. We convince ourselves that things have more meaning than they actually do. We grab onto it. We convince ourselves that what we're doing at our job means more than it actually means. We convince ourselves that when we're in school that it actually means something. We we convince ourselves that certain relationships really mean something more than they, they, they do. But all you need to do today is just stop listening to me or as you're listening to me, just walk out of your house, get in a car, drive to a cemetery and just start walking and reading the headstones. Just re- start reading them, looking at the dates, look at the date they were born, look at the date that they were died and then ask yourself, does did this person's existence really mean anything to anyone? They were there, they were gone and life did not even pause for a second at at their end, at their departure, at their death. I've talked about it so many times. I've always been painfully aware of how life is Havel, that it's empty, that it's vain, that it's meaningless. It's always been just something that has haunted me and haunted me and haunted me. So I've, I've always in a sense, focused everything almost with kind of a a detachment. Like everyone's running around thinking that this is important. And I'm always the one going, you realize none of this really means anything. You're getting bothered. You're getting upset. You're none of this. You're, you're trying to find meaning in this. You're trying to find purpose. You're trying to find identity. And it's all just a big 
scam. It's there's nothing there. It's just it's there and it's gone. It's a bubble that you you're you're trying to grab onto, but you're never really truly going to be satisfied, truly going to be happy. You're just trying to convince yourself that it had more meaning than it does. It doesn't mean anything. And and this uh, this not only has it always in a sense haunted me my, pretty much my entire life. It became more clear to me when I was in the military and I would watch someone who'd been in the military, say 20 years and they get ready to retire. There's 20 years of, of doing this and doing this and trying to get this promotion and doing this and getting this job and maybe getting orders here so they can get a medal so they can get more points for their promotion test so they can do this and da, 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 da. And all of the, their focus, 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 focus. And then there it is. They're at their retirement ceremony. Everyone's there. Maybe they do the, the, the folding of the flag and they present it to them in a, in a shadow box and maybe, they have their medals and everybody's like, yay, it's wonderful, great. Everybody thanks them for all that they've done. And then finally, the retirement ceremony is over. Everybody you know, gets a piece of cake and some punch and everybody shakes hands. And then what I would always do is immediately run up to the second or third floor of the hospital knowing that that person who just retired is getting ready to walk out. And I would always love to just stand there and watch them walk out. And you can see them, you know, walking out of the building. Maybe they kind of pause. Maybe they look back for a second. And you can just tell they're trying to process that it's over, that their career is done, that it's over. And then they walk away. And then what I love is I'll watch it and just realize, yeah, 20 years of your life, it's just gone. All of those things that you got upset about and you get worried about and you fought over and you got, it's just, it just disappeared. Havel, it's just, it's just breath. It was gone. And so then I'll run back downstairs and you just give it a couple of hours, right? Sometimes not even a couple of hours. Everyone, everyone just picks right back up and just takes on that, that person's office. Someone's already moved into it. It's gone. And, and you give it a week, two weeks, six weeks, a month that that person, no matter what they did, no matter what they accomplished, no one cares what that person accomplished. No one remembers what that person accomplished. They are just forgotten. Everything that they thought was so was important really wasn't important. They convinced themselves it was, but it's just Havel. It's just gone. That's the reality. But even though that's the reality, we convince ourselves and we spend our life pursuing these things that are just there and they are gone. We, just, we, we grab onto them. We grab onto them. When we forget that none of that matters, everything under the sun is Havel. Everything under the sun is vanity of vanities. It is meaningless. It is useless. The only hope of finding anything that is of substance, that has true meaning, that has true purpose, that has any eternal significance, is that which is above the sun. We have to stop looking under the sun, and we have to pursue that which is eternal, which is God, the kingdom of God, that which has eternal significance, the word of God, prayer, evangelism. We have to put our focus there. And it's easy to say that, right? You can sit there and say that from the pulpit and everyone may say, amen. And deep down, everyone may go, yes, that's true. But then as soon as church is over, 
and they get in the car. Everyone goes home and immediately gets what their focus turns to, not to that which is eternal, but right back to Havel. That's what they focus on. That's what they talk about. That's what they get excited about because that's what we are naturally drawn to. We are naturally drawn to that which is meaningless and vain and then find ourselves trying to get convince ourselves of some purpose and meaning where there really isn't any. The only only thing that we have is that which is eternal. Everything, it has to be that which is above the sun. That's where we have to put our focus. But do you realize how difficult it is to really put your focus on that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? As much as we know that, as much as we preach that, as much as we say that, we know that in reality, we pursue all of these other things. We grab onto them. It's almost like we are addicted to Havel. We, we are addicted to Havel and we're almost, we almost have a, a built-in rejection of that which is eternal. It's like that which is eternal, we don't see it as, as satisfying as we see the Havel. That's what we seem to find we, we, we pursue. That's what we get excited about. Let's, let's see if this podcast that we've been listening to just a little bit of, it's the Lutheran Hour, if you would like to know. You should look up the Lutheran Hour, find this episode on Havel, and listen to all of it. But let's just see if they transition from this Havel to something different. And maybe a fairy tale is what we need to wake us up. Once upon a time, there was a spider. Not an ordinary spider, the biggest, baddest spider in all the land. And this spider had an attitude. And everywhere he went, he spun the stickiest, silkiest, glossiest webs in all of spiderdom. And in those webs, he would catch all kinds of insects. And when it was lunchtime or dinner time or snack time, he pounced on his web and those insects would struggle. And the more they struggled, the more they were entangled. And the biggest, baddest spider in all the land would rub his spidery hands and lick his spidery chops and laugh his spidery laugh. <laughs> but there was a problem. The spider lived in a tree, a tree next to the railroad track. And every morning when the sun rose, the train would go by and whoosh, his web would break. The insects would fall to the ground, and some of those tasty breakfasts, lunch, dinners, and snacks would escape. One day, the spider, fed up, said to himself, I have got to do something about that train. So he called his spider buddies together. All night, feverishly, they worked, spinning the silkiest, stickiest, glossiest web that's ever been spun in all of spiderdom. And when the wind was just right... The biggest, baddest spider leapt from his tree on the one side of the railroad tracks into the air, onto the tree on the other side, and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth he went and spun his strongest, spideriest spider web yet. And then on the south side of the track he said to a spider, You stand there. 
and on the north side he called to another, You stand there! Then the biggest, baddest spider in all the land positioned himself in the middle, and he set his seal in the center, and he turned and faced east, awaiting the destruction of the train. Early in the morning, as the sun was rising, he saw smoke rising in the distance. He could feel the vibrations of the track. Closer and closer it came. Now he sees the engine and he yells to the spiders on his right and on his left, The destruction of the train is upon us! And he rubs his spidery hands and licks his spidery chops and laughs his spidery laugh. <laughs> and whoosh. It was like he wasn't even there. I shared one Hebrew word with you today. Could I share a couple more? It's the phrase talithakum. It comes from one of the ancient biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, the gospel according to Mark. Jesus gets a request for help. It's a frantic father who comes from the crowd and says to him, My little daughter is sick. She's dying. Please come and put your hand on her so that she will be healed and live. Jesus goes with him. And on the way before they reached the house, some people came from the man's house and told him, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? And Jesus, overhearing what they had said, he says to the man, Don't be afraid. Only believe. Trust me, Jesus says. They come to the house and Jesus sees a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And after he entered in, he says to them, Why are you making such a commotion and wailing so loudly? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they began to laugh at him. And after he put them all out, he takes along the girl's father and mother and those who were with him. And he goes into where the child was and he takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, arise. And whoosh. It was like death wasn't even there. (laughs) She got up started walking around. You know, she was 12 years old, and they were all amazed because they knew that she was dead. And he says to them, give her something to eat. Jesus of Nazareth is no fairy tale. He did many things like this in ancient Israel. They are written down and recorded. And he was a threat to the Biggest, baddest power in all the land. Not the political or religious powers, but the dark spiritual power behind them. That same dark power that had persuaded Adam and Eve to acquire more. The same power crouching at Cain's door, coaxing him to kill his brother. That same power that catches us in the ancient lie that Hebel is all we were made for. That's the power Jesus threatened. 
And when they put his crucified dead body in a tomb, sealed it shut, set guards on either side, saying, You and you stand here and there. Easter morning came, the sun rose, and Jesus went through it like it wasn't even there. Now, that's a powerful way of of drawing the contrast. Havel is there and it says everything in life is meaningless. It's vain. And it doesn't just say it. It is so under the sun. Everything in life is Havel. It is meaningless. It is useless. It is. There's nothing there. You can grab on to it. But in Christ, he looks at that which is death, that which is obviously real, death is real, and he can just destroy it. Death, where is your sting? Grave, no longer has the hold. He has destroyed that. It is gone. He can destroy that. So in Christ, Havel can just be destroyed, and we are left with something of eternal significance, eternal meaning, and eternal value. But we have to look above the sun. Under the sun, Havel is real. It dominates every aspect of life. And for some reason, that's what we pursue. That's what we look to. But we have to look to Christ and in him, Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. All the devil is defeated. It's all destroyed in him. And it's in only looking to him that there's purpose and there's meaning. But we have to pursue that. The problem is we are so blinded by Havel. We see it and we're like, look how amazing it is. Look at how wonderful it is. And that's what we grab onto. And we spend day in and day out grabbing onto that. Now, how do we live our life? Well, on one hand, we have to pursue that which is eternal. We have to. The problem is it's always this never-ending struggle of, of, of going, okay, I, I know that which is eternal is of more importance. I know that which is of God is, is more important and significant. And I know this Havel is vanity and meaningless. We know that. We can say the right words, but we know how difficult it is that every single day we find ourselves finding the greatest sense of joy, pleasure in the Havel. And so either we try to then say, I'm going to eliminate everything that's Havel. I'm going to eliminate it. I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pursue that. I'm not going to pursue that. So we almost turn to trying to live a life like a, a monk, like we're living in a monastery that we're just going to throw out everything. And that never seems to truly work. We never seem to truly, it almost becomes, um, a legalistic thing. It's not that we truly have found that which gives more meaning and more joy. We, we just give ourselves over to a list of what we can and cannot do because we're going to pursue that which is eternal. That way doesn't seem to work. It just turns into a legalistic, like monastic lifestyle, and that doesn't seem to work. So how do we find that balance? How do you not spend your time pursuing Havel and you're giving to that to which is eternal? Is it a way, is there a way to bring the eternal, 
that which is above the sun and bring it under the sun so that while we live in this world, and yes, we find joy in this, we are doing so because of the presence of the eternal under the sun. In other words, it's either we take this really like, okay, everything under the sun, I'm just, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to watch this. I'm just going to eliminate everything under the sun. And I'm going to give myself to that, which is above the sun. And and no matter how much we try to claim to do that, usually it doesn't ever truly happen. Some people do, but they always seem very miserable and unhappy. And, and, and it almost becomes a sense of spiritual pride. Oh, I don't watch that. And we don't own a television and we don't do this. And we don't look at us. I don't, don't know if that's the answer. I think the answer is somehow we can bring the eternal under the sun so that when we do pursue these other things, we're doing so in an eternal perspective, which then gives some kind of meaning to those things under the sun. Now, I could explain that more, but I won't. I'll stop right there. The word, H-E-B-E-L. Some may say refer to it as hebel, which would be wrong. It's the B sound gets a V sound. So at best, you would say hevel, but the actual havel. That's the Hebrew word I want you to think about today. And the Hebrew word havel tells you that everything around you, everything under the sun is vanity. It's meaningless. It's useless. But Jesus Christ entered into this vanity, this meaninglessness, and he, in a sense, destroyed the meaninglessness. He defeated it. And in him, we have meaning and purpose. What are you clinging to? What are you holding on to today? You can email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I would love to get your thoughts and perspective on this. Now, the podcast we were listening to is the Lutheran Hour. I would challenge you to look up the Lutheran Hour. Listen to the rest of that episode. There's about another 13 minutes left. Go listen to it. I think it will, that they will, well, you can just see where they take the discussion. It'll be well worth your time. The Lutheran Hour, um, it, um, I think that's the episode from like two weeks ago, maybe, maybe a week ago, two weeks ago. It's called, eight, well, it's just the Hebrew word, Hevel or Havel. It's spelled H-E-B-E-L. So when you see it, you'll know, you'll know that's the episode. And I would definitely challenge you to listen to it, to add to this discussion discussion to supplement what we have said. We use what they we use what they did and we supplemented it. And now now that we have kind of brought our discussion to some kind of a conclusion, I'll point you back to that to supplement what we have done. So it's kind of like if you put it all together, I think you'll 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 benefit greatly from it. If you can't find the episode, just email me newsif at yahoo.com and I'll send you the link. But you should find the Lutheran Hour wherever you get your podcast. It's an episode that I think you should definitely finish listening to. All right. Thanks for listening. Again, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.